0: One of my favorite stories in the Bible is is the long story of a man named Elijah. And I'm going to read you a portion of his story today, but it's such a good story that it's a rather extended portion. So I'm going to let you uh, sit as we read the scripture this morning. These words are from the 19th chapter of the book of 1 Kings Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came And he sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. They are seeking my life to take it away. God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting the mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered again, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Yehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahola, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Yehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Yehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will, be, I will keep 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the story of God told for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, a few weeks ago, my friend and colleague, the Reverend Chris Estes, and I went to hear a speaker at Travis Park UMC downtown here in San Antonio. And the speaker was a man named Dr. Jacob Wright. Dr. Wright is a Jewish biblical scholar at a United Methodist seminary in Atlanta. Dr. Wright has recently released a new book called Why the Bible Began, in which he researches the reasons that this text has come into existence. Most of us probably don't ask this question, do we? Why did the Bible begin? Why was this collection of writings produced and preserved? Most of us just kind of take this Bible for granted. We just assume that the Bible was written because God wanted it written and we kind of leave it at that. And so I think this is an interesting question to ask. And Dr. Wright asks this deeper question. What was it about the real world experiences of the people that produced the Bible that inspired them to do so? And if these were real people living in real times and real places, what was it about that reality that inspired this text? And so Dr. Wright opened his talk uh, that evening by saying this. When the Bible began, it was not merely a philosophical exercise. The Bible didn't begin with a bunch of old dudes sitting around wondering what God was like and writing down their ideas and lists of attributes. Instead, said Jacob Wright, the Bible began because of destruction and trauma, The history of the people of Israel is a history featuring constant defeat, constant defeat at their own mistakes, constant defeat from foreign powers, and the Bible was written and collected and compiled in the wake of not just one exile, but several exiles that were finally made complete by the Babylonians. By this time, these people were wondering if the God that they'd been worshiping had abandoned them. As we've said here on, this Sunday, on Sunday mornings before, they were asking the question, why? Why were they constantly conquered? If their God was indeed the God of the stories they'd been telling, why were they in exile? So they started to record these ancient stories, these tales and legends, these historical dramas, and they began to evaluate their history and critique their past through the poetry of the prophets and the epics of liberation and failure. And so in a place where there was no light on the horizon, where there was no clear path to restoration and redemption, they created a library. And that library pointed them forward to a future that still somehow contained hope. And so today we read from a couple of books that are called First and Second Kings that used to be just one book. And this book of Kings was produced in these years of exile. And it tells the history of the decline of the nation of Israel from the death of the great King David until the exile. And one of the primary purposes of this book is to assign blame for the termination of their nation. The authors of this book are constantly trying to discover exactly who to blame, who's at fault for this Babylonian captivity. And their answer, almost universally, is their politics. Elijah rises in the middle of this book of Kings. He's seemingly completely out of place because this is a series, a series of stories about triumphant monarchs, but also about their massive mistakes. And so Elijah rises as a prophet, not as a civil savior, but as a tireless and tormented prophet critiquing the whole system. And when we meet Elijah, A man named Ahab has just become king and the author repeats a common refrain to describe this new monarch. The author says Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's eyes more than any of the kings that had come before him. And so this man is anointed and suddenly Elijah appears and announces to Ahab that a drought will overcome Israel because of his injustice. Just as suddenly Elijah flees the king into the desert. You've probably heard the stories of Elijah's survival over the next few years. He's uh, first sustained by a brook where ravens bring him food. And when this stream dries out because of this drought that he's announced, he takes shelter with a widow and her son. And this widow explains to him, There is no oil, there is no flour in my home. My son and I are about to eat our last meal, and then we will lay down to die. And yet, somehow, with Elijah in the home, oil and flour is provided. In the land, as the drought leads to famine and the famine leads to death, illness spreads. And illness comes even into this home. The boy takes ill and dies slowly, it says. Elijah, though, pleads for God to return life to this boy, and the boy somehow is resurrected. And with this event, it seems that this God has finally had enough suffering and death come to the land. And so this God sends word to Elijah to go finally to confront this Ahab, to confront his wife Jezebel and all the prophets of injustice that they employ. And what follows is one of the most epic scenes in the Bible. Elijah and Ahab meet once again. Ahab accuses Elijah of bringing trouble to Israel through this drought. And Elijah returns the accusation. It's in fact Ahab who's brought trouble to Israel by refusing to live within this covenant. By worshiping this false god Baal, this lord of wind and violence, this lord of fire and storm. And so Elijah challenges Ahab to a contest. A showdown between Baal and the God of Israel. And Ahab accepts and brings his 450 prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. They set up a sacrificial altar on top of the mountain. Each group, the prophet of Hashem and the prophets of Baal. And in turn, each of them call down fire from the heavens to consume their sacrifice. And Baal never answers. But at Elijah's prayer, the Lord's fire fell and consumed everything. As the people of Israel rally around this prophet, the prophet races down the mountain. And together they capture all of these prophets of Baal and they murder them one by one in a stream. And finally rain begins to fall. It's all of these events that precede the passage that we read this morning. It's this showdown that Ahab reports to Jezebel and causes Jezebel to threaten Elijah's life. And despite Elijah's grand victory, Ahab and Jezebel, though, are still in power. Despite their abandonment of the law and the Lord who gave it, they cling to their office and they seek to eliminate this man that threatens it. And so Elijah's only safe course of action at this point is to flee once again into the wilderness. And so exhausted at this frenetic encounter and disenchanted by his own ineffectiveness in turning this nation around, Elijah goes into exile. Now I'm hoping that you're hearing some echoes here. A wicked monarch subjects the people of Israel to injustice. A prophet rises to the occasion and seeks to confront this monarch and set the people free. The God of Israel in a wondrous encounter confronts and defeats these lesser gods or this lesser God and then into the desert the prophet goes. We should be hearing echoes of the story that we talked about last week, the story of Moses and the Exodus. But we should also be hearing echoes of the very people who wrote this story down, echoes of the story of exile that later generations of Israel experienced. And so this story of Elijah is a brilliant piece of literature. It calls those that read this story to remember, to remember together two different stories that ended in vastly different places, to remember the slavery, to remember the God that set them free and led them to a promised land. But then also remembering the failure, their own abandonment of this God that had set them free, and their own exhausting and disenchanted walk into this exile. And so Elijah Elijah walks into this wilderness. And different from the Exodus, he walks into this wilderness alone. Alone in the desert, he lies under a tree and he asks to die. And the nation doesn't follow. Even as he returns to Horeb, this mountain of God that Moses had met God on. When Elijah reaches this mountain, he too has spent this time in the desert, 40 days and 40 nights. And he lays down again, this time in a cave, but instead of meeting his death, Like Moses before him on this same mountain, Elijah somehow meets God. But while Elijah's theophany recalls Moses, the pattern isn't exactly repeated. Moses met God in the wind. Moses met God in a violent earthquake and a violent fire from heaven. The natural power of God enveloped this mountain as Moses went up it just as it had the burning bush. But this time, as Elijah is on top of that mountain, God, it says, is not in this cacophony. Perhaps it's because these natural disasters are the tools of this Baal. Or perhaps it's because God has already appeared this way on Mount Carmel. We don't really know why it is. But instead, it says that after the cacophony, There was no sound, there was thinness, there was quietness, and there was silence. And it's the silence that finally calls Elijah to rise again. And as he steps forth out of the cave, he wraps his cloak around his face. And Elijah's theophany is almost a no theophany. It's almost like he experiences nothingness. He hears no sound. It's silent. His eyes are wrapped. He sees no sight. And yet still the word of the Lord comes to him. Elijah what are you doing here? Elijah, who's rather stuck in a rut, repeats a complaint he's already made. I've been zealous, and yet the people abandon you, they seek to kill me and I am alone. I am alone. I am alone. This is the fourth story of epiphany that we've encountered here on Sunday mornings. And we're probably starting to notice some patterns. We're probably starting to form some sorts of expectations as to how God handles these encounters, what God will offer, and how God will respond. It's at this moment when Elijah has come to the end of himself, when this prayer is begging for mercy and expressing doubt and acknowledging failure, even wishing for death, that we expect God to show up and offer something. We expect God to offer what he offered to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, and the people of Israel. We expect this God to make a promise of blessing and a promise of presence. We expect this God to say, Elijah, get up. I'm gonna bless you. I promise that it's gonna be me that goes with you. That's not what happens in this story. In this story, Elijah makes his complaint, and God leaves it completely unacknowledged. Instead, God says, Go. Go. Return to the wilderness that you work in, not this wilderness of wandering. Go back to the conflict, go back to the trouble, go back to taking the risks you still have work to do. Anoint new kings and prophets and confront new violence. Go back and face what it is that you must face. And so Elijah is left with the choice. Does he abandon the mission like so many others have around him, as even his political leaders have, or does he remain in this desert, remaining and waiting for death? Or does he go? Does he trust that this God that has given life from the beginning of the story will continue to give life? Like the ravens, like the widow, like the sun, like rain on the land. Life even to this man as he starved and he thirsted in the desert. And so Elijah returned. This is a story that's spoken for the people of God in a real place, in a real time, and in a real historical situation. They had seen the violence. They'd seen a walk into the wilderness, and they had realized their failure dejected and disenchanted without a king and without a hope for a future. But this story reminds them that it wasn't a king that freed them in the first place. They don't need a king to find hope. They need to face the conflict and the trouble and the risk. And so they need to decide what it is that they need to do. Whether to abandon this mission altogether, waiting for death in this wilderness, or whether to trust this God that had set them free and given them life. Even having experienced nothing of the divine in exile, having experienced no theophany... Like Elijah, hearing no sound and seeing no vision, what will they do? The Reverend Richard Nelson says of this moment's meeting for these exiles, there may be no theophanies in Babylon, no theophanies in the Babylonian exile, but there is still certainly plenty for the people to do. I read an article this week that detailed the American disillusionment with our political process. It wasn't just lamenting this upcoming election, it was a big part of it. One of my favorite quotes was, we're racing forward to a race that none of us want. But the article was saying more. It was saying that most of us feel like this democratic system is no longer showing us all that democracy can show us. That no matter where we are on the political spectrum, we feel like our modern monarchs are not long, no longer in it for our benefit, but for their own. Many of us feel here in America that we are in exile, that we have no voice, that we have no vote, that we have no self-determination, and that we no longer have a nation that we call our own. For some of us, this feeling is compounded because we don't have a narrative We don't have a narrative of faith to fall back on. We have no story of divine encounter, no story of divine provision. And so if you are an American exile, the story was written for you. Our kings have let us down and our prophets are running out of energy and all of us feel alone. And for many of us, our hopelessness is even more local Our hopelessness is in our hearts and in our minds and in our sadness, and it's our loneliness. Because despite the cacophony around of us, we can't still hear this voice. And so we need a better narrative. We need a better narrative than the American dream. This narrative can be ours. We see terrible winds, we see the violent shaking of the earth, and we see a fire that consumes everything. Maybe we're even looking for God in these obvious, amazing earthquakes, but sometimes God is not in the cacophony. Sometimes our epiphany is in silence. Sometimes our encounter with God is a no-theophany. Sometimes our encounter is a still, small voice that says to keep fighting, to keep engaging, and to keep taking risks. Because there may be no theophanies in the American exile, but there is still plenty for the people to do. In the name of the God that we don't always meet, in Jesus the Christ who wanders his own 40 days in the desert and the spirit that wakes us up to eat and to drink, amen.